Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining me today. Good to be here. So to kick things off, Chris, how did you get into procurement? It was a long time ago, a long, long time ago. Uh, I used to work in a hospital in Chichester. So I'd fallen into a role there working in what was known as an, an equipment library. And um, I was kind of just dossing about it. So I needed to do something. And uh, I spoke to a guy called Andrew Boxall, who was the head of procurement at the time, uh, because he had a role advertised. I was nowhere near meeting the criteria. But I had a chat with him and he had, I remember, he had a shelf in his office and he had lined up all of the SIPS magazines, like there from like, I don't know, five, six years or something. And so he just lent me quite a few. And so I learned a bit about it. Um, thought it was pretty good and then a role came up at a place called Solent Supplies so this was mid to late noughties um, and that was run by a guy called Alan Hoskins so this is an NHS like collaborative um, procurement place um, which did the the buying for Portsmouth hospitals mainly and Isla White as well and um, there was a role I went for it you know totally underqualified nothing on my CV apart from I worked in a hospital and knew what they were buying and uh I then, yeah, I got an interview, surprised, went for it. Um, it was more a learning curve uh, for me, um, but it was really interesting. And thankfully, Alan and his team kind of called me up and said, actually, we're creating some junior roles, which would be interested. And so then applied for that and, and got the role and fell into, fell into procurement, as most people end up doing. And then um, they, were, they were great there, um, fantastic place. They had a breadth of... You know, really experienced people as well as some junior people as well. They got you to start doing uh, self-educating um, um, SIPs. So went through the qualifications there. And then, yeah, um, however many years later it is, what is it, 15, 16 years later, here I am. Fast-tracking for now, you're now Head of Procurement at Vitality. Um, do you want to give us a bit of an overview of the, the kind of makeup of your procurement function, the roles and how it's all broken down and how you've split the function up? Yeah, yeah, of course, James. Uh, so, so yeah, so we've got a, we're the sourcing and supply management team within Vitality. There's, there's 10 of us. Uh, I, I head up that function. So we have um, responsibility for at least 160, 170 million pounds worth of spend. But actually, when you look at some of the clinical elements we do as well, it can go up to about 300 million, uh, direct and indirect. Um, that team is, we've got a few offices in Vitality, Stockport, London, Croydon and Bournemouth. The majority of our team is in Bournemouth, normally, obviously, in under circumstance, different circumstances. And then one of our teams up in London as well. And we have some, some front kind of like customer facing sourcing members who look after different categories. So clinical, marketing, IT, digital. Uh, and then someone who thankfully looks after the rest, you know, property and facilities, document management operations. And then we have a bit of a back office as well. So looking after supply risk, contract management and the administration of that. And also, you know, renewals, reviews, uh, supplier management, supporting with putting in place 360s, uh, the management, the segmentation of that and our whole operations function as well. So, yeah, 10 people across the board. Um, fantastic team do some great stuff and then we're measured on certain objectives we do end-to-end -end. so um we do it from you know business idea and inception and get involved with business cases all the way through to, to supplier termination and everything in between which i'm really pleased about i don't think we quite have enough resource to to dedicate as much time as i'd like to each of the areas uh, but um we work in close conjunction with the business to to support on their supplier management and, and getting most value out of their suppliers and bringing on board 
the best new suppliers too. It's been an interesting couple of years, Chris, as, as I'm sure you're, you're no doubt aware. What, what are some of the challenges you and the team are currently facing at the moment? Uh, it's, yeah, it's been, it's been a very interesting two years, hasn't it, for everybody? Um, firstly, adapting to, to not being in an office anymore, to working from home, and, and also at the same time, I suppose back in what March, April 2020, we were all starting to have to, to really look at all of our service providers and whether they would be able to continue delivering services of vitality. Uh, so we did a huge piece of work back then to look at business resiliency, make sure we had supply contingency plans in place. And unfortunately, we did have two or three that did, you know, stop trading uh, just because of the way they delivered services um, to customers. It just, it just wasn't going to work out in the pandemic. We also had a load of others who, who evolved tremendously like overnight, as well as a lot of Vitality did as well. I mean, Vitality, if people know it, offers a lot of partners and rewards to, to incentivize you to to live healthier lives by going and doing steps or a cycle or a run, James. Uh, um, so it goes and does that. But we used to give away cinema tickets, still do, but clearly cinemas were shut, so it didn't work. So it moved to, instead of doing cinema tickets, you had at-home movies. And instead of going to your local coffee shop to go to get a Cafe Nero, you get coffee at home and get beans and deliver, beans delivered. So things changed quite a bit. Um, and we had to be involved with that. And I think from that, we've, we've been a lot hotter on contingency plans, exit plans, business continuity, business resiliency, disaster recovery. It's been a huge focus just to make sure. I mean, thankfully, we're a financial services organisation. Um, a lot of service providers, a lot of them have been able to carry on working. I mean, it must be totally different in, in other areas where things have stopped, supply chains have come to a grinding halt. Thankfully, we didn't have too much of that happening. Um, and then it's just been adapting to, to the way of working. Sourcing is all about engagement. You fight so much to, to get in front of the right stakeholders, the right people, to influence their decisions, to show what value you can have. So doing that virtually is a bit tricky. I mean, thankfully, we've got an established team, established people, established relationships. But, but we've just got to keep that up. And so... It's fine when you pass someone in a corridor and speak to them for a bit and they go, oh, I need to talk to you. We've got some money. You know, we've got this business case approved. Um, that's not happening so much. So it's just it's just about having those Teams, Zoom, Skype calls to keep up interactions, to keep your face out there, to keep up the engagement of the team so that we're, we're adding value at the earliest possible opportunity. And I think that's good because we actually have engagement stats that we report on a monthly basis. And we've seen those skyrocket. Now the pandemic, which is mad because it shouldn't, they shouldn't go hand in hand, but they have, which I'm really pleased about. What are you um, most passionate about when it comes to procurement at the moment? Uh, I think the hot topic for everybody seems to be, and rightly so, sustainability. Um, but I'm pretty sure lots of people have spoken about that numerous times. So I wasn't going to spend a huge amount of time on it, even though clearly it's a, a hugely important focus and we are doing a lot reviewing our supply chains looking at who's putting sustainable practices in place and bringing them on along with us on a on our journey and mission to be to be carbon neutral in the next few years and then to be net zero by by 2050 my my piece is more about shared value um to those who know vitality we talk about shared value quite a lot but i kind of believed in this before joined vitality it just happened to, to marry up quite nicely in that shared value being that that both parties get something out of it. So for Vitality, that means we incentivize 
healthier behaviors from our customers the customers lead healthier lives they therefore claim less and and therefore you know then we can reduce premiums it's just it's that cycle um i said that very simplistically for 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 sourcing and suppliers it's about making sure that the benefits on both sides now some may say well obviously there's a benefit you get a service they get paid what do you want but you want to incentivize further in service improvement performance improvement enhancements and i think we've tried to put in a lot of contracts over the past few years that that drives that performance so i'm not talking about just having service credits and penalization because that's it's more about having that carrot as well as the stick um so what we try and do is we try and bonus and incentivize our suppliers by reaching certain targets and and there's a few of them out there specifically in the clinical space who've been fantastic who then you know go and speak to their customer service teams to try and try and reduce say the amount of complaints to improve their net promoter score that we use for feedback to look at their clinical outcomes and they're doing all these things because we've set these targets and yes they get financially rewarded for them but also they're going to be better for the customer and better for vitality too and then they can use that to then work with other customers too so that's the key thing that that I like to do it's not about just bringing on board the right providers or suppliers it's about then making sure that you've got a contract that works for both parties that you both keep you both keep looking at and working at and wanting to improve upon to to continually deliver a better service and for some areas it won't work but but I think for quite a few it will and that's what I'm passionate about because then it just keeps it keeps both parties kind of focusing on what they can do to improve right thanks Chris and what, what would you say are some of the kind of key focus areas for procurement at the moment? Um, what are they and, you know, what, what indeed should they be, do you think? Uh, I'm going to have to talk about sustainability now. So, so yeah, so clearly it's a, it's a yeah. massive focus area. It's, it's everywhere, isn't it? ESG, green, all the different names that it comes under. I think it's going to be hugely important. I think um, customers or the general public have a significant more focus on this than they had done previously. Um, and rightly so, because it's because it's out there. And I think we need to make sure that we're doing all that we can to be sustainable. Um, we've got large projects underway of vitality to reduce the amount of print we have. We know that other organizations out there have reduced it significantly, and we want to be in the same boat. There's not there's not the requirement anymore, but it means a lot of digital investment to make sure that you've got the right communication channels, the right contact details to be able to send communications um, digitally where possible. But it's it's definitely the right thing to do. So we've got to act as a bit of a an enabler there and incentivizing. That's the tricky thing. How do you incentivize a print management provider to print less? <laughs> uh, but that thankfully, most print management companies they're not just printers anymore. They're kind of customer commu- they're communications partners. So they are looking because they can see that the market's turning. And obviously everyone's seen it with what's happening with newspaper and print. So therefore that's reducing significantly. And so we'd hope to just kind of work with them moving forward. So I think that's that's a key thing. And then also just that continuation of the supply chain resiliency. And like I say, in financial services, it's not, it's not a huge issue as it will be in other sectors and other markets, but we still need to make sure that we've got that, that resiliency in place in case anything does change in the future or there are any more fluctuations in the market. And I'd love to hear um, 
you know, when you're when you're looking to bring new talent into your your team, your procurement team, what do you look for when you're um, going through the hiring process in individuals? Um, this is interesting and timely, and we probably need to have a conversation at some point uh, because <laughs> but, uh, we've actually got two vacancies at the moment. We've got a couple of people unfortunately leaving the team, both fantastic people who is going to be a great loss to ones retiring and ones moving on to new ventures, actually working, moving outside of sourcing and going into working into IT where they had done previously. And I'm really pleased for both of them because it's the right decision for them at this moment in time. But it means we're, yeah, we're looking for people to come on board at the moment. What are we looking for? Um, the right, so I'm always looking for someone, people to come in with the right personality to, to fit with the team. I think we're really, good team and even though we've we have been in the office not not recently not in the last couple of months whenever the announcement was made but before that we were in and I think there's a good balance in the team a good um, camaraderie and I really enjoy that and I want someone to come in and enjoy that too but also clearly I need someone who's got the right level of expertise and um, to be able to do that experience is an interesting one for me because I like to think that you can always experience is great but you should always give people opportunities maybe if they don't have that and maybe that's because that's how I got into procurement in the first place I always go through every CV that comes in regardless if it doesn't say sourcing at the top or procurement at the top or or whether you know it's half a page rather than 10 pages just to see if there's something there that sparks a bit of interest something that potentially and and I know for maybe not for senior roles but certainly for for the middle of the road or junior roles i will i'll have conversations with a lot of people just to find out a little bit more rather than what's on paper to see if there's something that just stands out i suppose i'm always hoping to find that that gem that it might not it might not be perfect on paper compared to what you're comparing it with but actually they're going to be they're going to be perfect fit because they've got the right the right soft skills um because it's about it's about being a great communicator it's about influencing and engaging with stakeholders. And you don't necessarily have to be the best negotiator, although clearly it helps. But I know there's some, there's some people in a team and they won't be afraid, they won't be um, worried about me saying this, who despise negotiation. And some people absolutely love it. So it's not, it's not the be all and end all. I think it's about fairness, communication, um, and then and then having a patience, I suppose, with certain stakeholders to move forward but if you've got a, a good variety of soft skills to come on board and you like a challenge certainly vitality is a massive challenge um then then come on come on board i guess this this might tie in quite nicely chris um you know what what inspires you as a procurement leader and um for someone watching what, why might they want to come and work for you <laughs> uh what inspires me? I like to make a difference. It's always been um, the thing. I don't. I don't want to get to the end of the day and feel that, or the end of the week, or the end of the month, and feel like I haven't actually contributed to something. I think the positive, and this is the reason why I've been at Vitality six years, four months, longest I've ever been in a role. Normally get to three years. Although if you look at my LinkedIn on CV, there's a couple where it only lasted about eighteen months, but it's only because there was new opportunities. It wasn't anything against that role at the time. Um, it's always a challenge. I, I can't believe I've been at Vitality six years. It's a fantastic challenge and that, that you you get involved with some massive projects that are going to change things. They're going to be better for customers and members. It means they're going to be able to have access to care quicker. 
It means that we're going to promote the brand better. It means that our systems are going to work better. And we are heavily involved with this. And I like that. And that and that makes a big difference to me. I've been in roles in the past where you feel that actually it doesn't make a difference if you do this piece of work or not. Um, I think that makes a big difference to vitality. And I think people are commended and rewarded for that. What inspires me is um, I love to see great leadership i love to see people challenging the status quo and that happens here at vitality i like to see people doing things differently i love it when for me i love it when you're attending a, a governance forum or a committee and someone asks a question that you'd never even think of or dream of but actually you're like where did that come from that's great i want to i want to learn from that and i love to learn from colleagues like i work thankfully i've had a uh, fantastic amount of experience while I've been here to work with some some senior colleagues in the business who have been able to take aspects uh, of, of what they say and what they do and try and incorporate them into my own style and what I do going forward. Um, you won't mind me saying this, but our chief healthcare and medical officer, Ali Hassan, has been a great influence. He's, um, he's very challenging of suppliers and third parties, but honest and in a, in a positive way because he wants to drive the right behaviours and the right performance. And I've been able to incorporate some of that into, into what I do too. And it's great to see that we've both, we've both kind of progressed and grown our roles in the time that we've been here at Vitality. What's been the biggest lesson you've learned in your procurement career so far? Uh, there was a few early on some interesting ones um i the one the one i like which i remember from i mean this is a long time ago i'll, I'll do a later one but i'll do an early one first uh, we went to when i was at solon supplies so which did the the procurement for portsmouth hospitals um we had a an away day i think at a local hotel or something this is based over at hedge end and um it was a negotiation training course and so you had tutors come in and talk about it to begin with. And then you actually had to do role play. And obviously everyone despises his role play, don't they? Everyone. And then when you get into it, it's actually really good. And we, I got faced up against the director, the leader of it all, Alan Hoskins. Um, and I was the most junior person doing it at the time. So it's like, you've got to be joking me. And uh he stayed silent the entire way through our negotiation as I was just trying to get him to say something. And in the five minutes he stayed silent, I think I'd reduced what I was, you know, I'd increased my offer or reduced what I was, whatever I was selling it for by such a significant amount. And he just said at the end, he'd, he'd done nothing. He'd done absolutely nothing. And so that lesson of just the power of silence, I just thought was absolutely just amazing. And it stuck with me for so long because everyone wants to fill that void or say something and sometimes you just don't need to because someone else will and they'll say something that will give you that information that you can use to go forward. Now clearly that's great in negotiations. I think um, more experience is just um, is not, uh, not being too quick to react to things. Everyone's, some people get quite offended by the way that people go about things or get frustrated or worried about certain things that happen and I think you've just got to take into everyone's a everyone's a human being everyone's I hope everyone's working so they can live a fantastic life outside uh, you know so so they're all so actually just just take a moment 
think about it and think actually if they're being like that what what is our rationale for that what pressure's on them to make that call or make that decision and then don't be offended because it's not about you it's not against you and then what can you do to assist them or help them or do something because we've all been in positions where we've got to an end of a project and then something's gone horribly wrong and you think it's the end of the world and it's not it's not because everything gets sorted and, and fixed in the end so it's just always just trying to have that pragmatic view about things that you can um, you can get it fixed you can get it sorted it'll all be fine in the end just take a step back think about what you're doing think about how you're going to tackle that problem and move forward i think those are two really good lessons and um i i've certainly had a few uh a few early career situations where, where those have been kind of really hammered home particularly with the power of silence i remember early on sitting across from a, um, a potential client and having a negotiation um he was a lot more senior than i was and i was a bit of an upstart and um <laughs> He just raised his eyebrows and um, and he didn't say anything. He just kept raising his eyebrows and I kept talking and talking and talking. And uh, he got what he wanted out of the situation without, like you say, saying really anything, just a few a few gestures. And um, and then I kind of thought, what, what did I do wrong there? And, you know, it was a, it was a lesson that I never forgot. It's incredible, isn't it? Because, yeah, it really hits home of how little you actually need to, to do in these situations. Because People don't want to feel awkward, do they? They don't. They always want to avoid yeah, always. So oh, I'm glad you've, you've got that one too. Definitely. And who would you say has had the biggest impact on, on your career so far? Is there a kind of procurement leader that has influenced you significantly? I think I've had some, I'm pleased to say I've had some really good ones in my time. Um, I've worked in quite a few um, different areas and organisations, so I'm pleased to say that they've had a really good influence. I think Alan... Alan, to begin with, at Solent Supplies, I think that when you're in that early stage of career, I think it's really important to have those influences. I also had a, a few good managers as well, um, Neil Routledge, Matthew Owen, they were, they were fantastic at the time and really kind of, you know, I was pretty young. I mean, like 20 years old um, and they were, you know, guiding me along, giving me opportunities and not holding me back and letting me make my own mistakes, which which was which was good. And I think that, so a good influence and then and then throughout the years I mean I worked at the office for national statistics for a while there was a, a heck of a character who led that department a guy called Scott Howell who what a guy tremendous guy the most hospitable person ever will do anything for you at any time um and he was just I mean brilliant and gave gave me additional opportunities I went there to work on the 2011 census but ended up doing it was only on a fixed term contract. I mean, for like three and a half years, but still fixed term. He was able to give me other opportunities, knowing that I'd still be leaving, but but to enhance my my sourcing development, the sourcing career at that time. So he was, I mean, yeah, just just absolutely superb. But I've never, I mean, I don't think I've ever met someone who who would just do who is in that higher position, higher role, but still still would care for anybody or help anybody out and always always dedicate time to anyone and i think that's that's important the more the further you go up the chain you're still being able to dedicate time i mean i'm not not that high up by any means i'm not trying to trying to state that at all but but you should always be able to just give give a few minutes a few a few bits of time to anybody because it might to you it might not mean a huge amount but to them it could mean a whole lot more so it's important to share any advice wisdom 
at all because we've all been in that point where we're starting on our careers and are wanting to suck in anything that we absolutely can. Reds fan, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's the Alex Ferguson treatment, isn't it? They're talking to everybody, no matter what their position in the club or the company, making everybody at the same level and for the same because everybody's important and everybody has a role to play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, they do. And then, um, yeah, it's all going to be everyone's going to be able to help each other out at some point, aren't they? So you never know when it may it may turn around that you need their assistance or something. And I think, I think it's. Yeah, it's good to good to respond to people, good to give people the time, good to be approachable as much as possible. And actually, I I miss that about being in the office, about, you know, being able to see people and pop over to people's desks and come over. I feel it's a bit more intrusive just calling someone in Teams or Zoom or whatever. I don't I don't understand why, but I don't know about if you feel like this as well. I, I feel like I have to, especially internally, I feel like I have to message them first saying, are you free? Feel like Whereas, you're somebody's flow don't you Whereas yes. if you go over to their desk you can kind of say oh you know if you've got a minute it feels a little bit softer but you are definitely interrupting their flow aren't you <laughs> because you just yeah because they're clearly not just sat there waiting for people to arrive at their desk yes. but yeah it just feels a little a little bit more intrusive because you don't know what they're doing at that point I mean they could be they could be on their phone I don't know it could be downstairs making a coffee or or, or doing anything like that but uh, I think that's something I'm trying to get get a little bit more used to and also the point of trying to get people more people to I suppose call me as well naturally Chris the the landscape of of how we work has changed probably quite significantly since you and I started out in our careers um what advice would you give to somebody at the the very start of their career looking to go into procurement now um I would I'd advise them to go and speak to a few people to go and to go and get as much information as possible um, to try and shape their career. Also, it's that opportunity to to sell themselves because then they can then they can be thought about because it's getting harder and harder to recruit um, at, at the at the the salary benchmarks that we previously had um, because the market's changed um, and is changing daily. From, from what we see so why not use the opportunity to rather than spending an extra 15 20 000 pounds to to bring on board someone who who would have been at that lower level before why not use that to invest in in more junior staff and graduates and apprenticeship schemes those kind of elements to try and bring them into that so for those people who are approaching that i'd encourage them to try and reach out to i mean linkedin's so easy to find out who's who's who isn't it so you can you can find out who the leads are for all of the local on the south procurement sourcing services business sectors that you can go to and, and reach out for them because I think they'd always be happy to pass on a little bit tidbit of advice or something that can go forward. But I think that's the that's the key. Have those initial conversations to start with, rather than just applying for a role. I think if you just apply for a role, you might not be suitable. You don't know what's going on with that. Have that conversation. And I think that's also important. I try and do that with any anything that we go through. Although our teams like to go through formal, you know, recruitment say, right, when we have in the formal interviews, I don't want that yet. I just want to have a 10-minute conversation with someone, find out about them, find out what makes them tick, find out why they're applying for the role, what's going on. Um, you know, thrash out those elements, why they would be suitable or not suitable. So I like to have that conversation first. And so that's what I do. I'd encourage those people to go and, Go and reach out to people and have a few conversations. You don't have to know 
sourcing end to end. You don't have to know EU procurement laws. You don't you don't need to know about supplier management or contract management. But if you've got the right soft skills, then someone might give you a chance. Yeah, just talk to people. Yeah, just just talk to people because I don't know any. It's very rare that you find someone who's left school and going, I want a sourcing job or a procurement job. We, unbelievably, I don't know how this has even happened. We've got someone in our team who did a supply chain degree, which I didn't even know existed. And in fact, and good on them because they're like probably the most qualified in our team. But most people haven't done that, have they? Most people have done something and just, and just fallen into it and enjoyed business, enjoyed selling or buying, um generally not like selling because that's why you end up in procurement because you like to face off against those people and just like communication soft skills and working in an office and then you end up yeah you either end up as an accountant or a sourcing person or or recruiter eh? (laughs) as you know we um we've recently um onboarded um vitality as our healthcare provider and and we love it we absolutely love it you know we're all fairly competitive in the office so the, uh, the gamification of fitness goes a long way with us. Um, going a bit off piste here, do you think that there's a, um, a, a like a space for gamification in the workplace? And is that something that, that you've ever tried with, with your team? Um, so we, we talk about the Vitality program quite a lot um, because it's different, it's innovative, it's, it's a good way to, to have that gamification. And on our email signatures, we say what status we are. So as you get more vitality points, you work yourself, work your way up from bronze to silver to gold, and hopefully to platinum at some point, although it is a big challenge. Um, I am platinum, but it has taken a lot of work to get there. Okay. <laughs> I have to get that in there, don't I? Um, and then you hopefully retain it year on year. Um, now we talk about that. And, and actually we try and uh, there's lots of, so rather than our specific team, but the organization as a whole does things to promote that. So there's been runs with execs. So they'll go on a lunchtime run. And our CEO has got involved with that. He's come down to Bournemouth. There's been morning runs, lunchtime runs along the seafront. There's been big gangs, like 50 people. Queues for the shower is enormous afterwards. But, but you know, going out and, and doing these things. And there's a lot of encouragement to do that. There's also, there's also a lot of like... Um, couch to 5ks and elements like that uh which have been really good in incentivizing the right things and everyone talks about the partners and awards all the time and sometimes we get to do some test runs of those before they actually go live to members so in terms of living healthier lives yes it's all out there in terms of the gamification it's an interesting one because we've all got savings targets um as you would in most sourcing organizations um now we we don't we don't put it front and center, but we do talk about it. People know how many say you know they know how much they've delivered this year. Now clearly, there's a whole host of other objectives. There's the supplier management, segmentations, outputs, contract management, um, and then there's all the projects that come on board on top. But I think I think it's for some for some members of the team, it's just a nice to have, and I think that's where you've got to approach it slightly differently rather than having you know leaderboard on the wall behind you and targets and all that i don't think we'll ever get to that stage but but uh ring the bell friday afternoon you know when you've hit that target <laughs> but um but i think some people are incentivized by that and i think i've you can pick up on that by who's more incentivized by that and then you put that more into personal objectives rather than the full 
the full gamification of it. But I think it's key that we have, rather than gamification, key that we have team objectives which flow into personal objectives, which overall will flow into the objectives of the business. So we've got a balanced scorecard, a report on it on a monthly basis, and it just keeps, it kind of brings home why people are, why am I doing this again? Oh, right, because it has this influence, it means this, and it adds this value. That's that, Chris. Chris, what do you like to do in your spare time outside of work? Uh, I cycle too much, um, as you as you know. Yeah, we follow I'm, each other on Strava. We do, we do. Um, I yeah, I'm I'm a bit obsessive about it. Uh, I have got um, a few bikes. <laughs> a few. Uh, I just, uh, don't know. I don't know if it's public knowledge if I've got five or six. But anyway, it's quite. There's a few, and uh, I do road cycling, and so throughout the winter training going on swift which is indoor cycling turbo training and then privileged enough to race in the summer so i ride for a local team bournemouth cycle works a great bunch of guys and girls um and we we race all around hampshire Dor- uh, dorset wiltshire sussex um and it's brilliant and uh i'm not i'm not I'm not great by any means i mean there's some there's a there's a kid on our team who's I think he's still 17 and he's unbelievable. I mean, like seriously, seriously good. And that puts in perspective when you go out on a Sunday and he he turns up at the start at 8.30 and it's cold and then he just goes from the start and you're like, yes, it's going to be, I was looking for a nice casual Sunday Sunday ride here and it doesn't turn into that. But yeah, that's that's generally what, what I do. But I'm getting a bit, bit older now. I think I'm into the master's category as they call it now. So, um, but we're, we do quite a few night trips as well we're going to um we're going to Liège which is in Belgium so one of the cycling classics is called La Doyenne but it's the it's the oldest um classic it's a monument the professionals do it and so they'll do it we're it's we went to do this in uh, 2020 but obviously it's been delayed twice um so this is end of April um it's 160 miles um you go from Liège to a place called Baston in the south back up to Liège you do it on the Saturday and then you watch the professionals do it on the Sunday. Although I'm not sure if, if I'm even going to be standing on the Sunday. Just be absolutely broken. It's, and it's hilly, really hilly. So I think it's about, I think it'll be about nine and a half, maybe 10 hours riding. It's pretty much an ultra ride. And you'll have earned yourself a few bits by the end of it, Chris, that's for sure. That's the thing though. I don't know how, yeah, I definitely will have done, but how, yeah, we, we did. Um, if you can make it to the pub. Yeah, we did one. We did we did one a, a few years ago in 2019, Paris Bay, which is um, northern France, across the cobbles, 108 miles, absolutely broken by the end. Desperate for a beer, and then got halfway through, and like you just just can't even do it. But yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's what I like to get up to. If you could give um, any advice to your younger self, uh, what would it be, and why? Uh, don't shoot from the hip was one thing that one guy, uh, a senior consultant in ophthalmology in, um, in Portsmouth hospitals accused me of that once because I, I went in to speak to him about a big procurement project for a whole load of slit lamps, which when you go get your eyes tested, they're those machines that always look about 40 years old. And it's because they are about 40 years old. And I said, they per- I, I said, he doesn't need to spend this money. They work perfectly. Um, not understanding the politics of it all that this guy had been fighting for a business case for years and years and years had finally got approval and then some upstart procurement guy turned around and said you don't need this so just 
think about things and think about supporting and don't yeah don't shoot from the hip as it were um i think it's just yeah elements like that and then um i think it's about just just taking opportunities when they come along trying to say yes to things don't um don't don't ever regret anything just go and say yes if someone offers you a chance to do something say yes if there's a role that comes up but you feel kind of obliged that you've only been with a place for for a year and you feel that you should be there for two years um I mean, there's loyalty, but yeah, take the opportunity while you're young because you'll you'll get to an up, you'll get to things later on in life where actually you'll be settled and you and you don't want to move and, and and you you like where you work and the opportunities might not be there and even if an opportunity does come down, kids, mortgage, everything like that. And that, so yeah, so when you're younger, use as take as many opportunities as possible. Good advice. And finally, Chris, um, tell us an interesting fact about yourself. An interesting fact. Should you prepare? Um, I once had a a disagreement with a womble. Yeah, uh, remember <laughs> this is a long time ago. Um, do you remember the wombles of Wimbledon? I mean, you're too young. I'm I'm just nearly too young, um, but they're obviously a big thing in whatever decade they're in. I had the privilege of being on the Saturday morning show Live and Kicking. A long, a long, long time. And kicking. You remember? Yeah, good. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you stopped it. <laughs> uh, they had a football quiz. So I um, had applied for it and managed to get on. And so I was on this football quiz um, and won, won a couple of rounds. So I got invited back for a few weeks, which um, so I'm about 14 at the time. Uh, so my dad didn't mind doing number the first one and then when it was the second one he was having to get up at like 4 30 or whatever it was on a saturday and the third one the fourth one he started to get a bit annoyed about it and was obviously secretly hoping that i'd lose uh i managed i got i was able to take a friend up with me and in the crowd at the end they did this um they did this like pan shot where you know you'd have all everyone waving and everything like that and um and <laughs> uncle bulgaria I mean, obviously, a person in an Uncle Bulgaria costume. I'm not honestly believing Uncle Bulgaria exists, just to be clear, was there in front of us. And he was, I mean, enormous. I mean, like, like absolutely enormous. Yeah. And there was a there was a a small girl who was next to us who decided just before they were about to do this final shot to start smacking Bulgaria on the back. I mean, like really, really going for him. Um, but obviously, it's taken a while to turn around. So by the time he'd finally turned around, I mean, it took him. I don't know, about 10 seconds, little girl would run off. So it's just me and my mate just, just stood there going, it wasn't us. And he just, he gave us a massive telling off. And so I know, and then turned back around for the shot. So obviously as soon as, so it is on, there's some footage somewhere, but then when the pan shots, we just started, we just started going for Bulgaria. And he was not happy, not happy at all, but we, it, was, it wasn't us. So yeah, so we had a bit of a, a ruckus with uh, Bulgaria, whenever, however many years ago that was. <laughs> well, great. There you go. On that bombshell. Now, <laughs> now, thank you very much for your time today, Chris. It's been been really good to get to know you better, and uh, yeah, we'll catch up afterwards.